fighting resumes between rival military groups in Sudan after a U.S.-brokered ceasefire collapsed just hours after it went into effect. It's Wednesday, April 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, the Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking classified documents is back in court today. The case has led to questions about why young military members have access to top secret information. Young people often produce that information. They are the analysts who prep intelligence briefings for the generals. Also a lawyer from Dominion Systems on its settlement from Fox News. And this hour, a new art exhibit in Boston asks what should be done to monuments from darker moments in history. Especially artifacts of the colonial era in the Caribbean as well as you know what we've been talking about here in the U.S. Clouds give way to sun today in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking classified government documents returns to federal court in Boston this morning. From member station WBUR, Ali Jarmanning reports the hearing will determine whether Jack Teixeira remains in custody. Investigators say 21-year-old Teixeira took home top-secret documents and shared photos of them in a private group chat. From there, the classified information spread to more public social media sites. That prompted one of the biggest intelligence leak investigations in recent years. Teixeira has been held since he was arrested at his Massachusetts home last week. If found guilty, he faces up to 15 years in prison. Meanwhile, the Air Force is investigating the intelligence unit where he worked. For NPR News, I'm Allie Jarmanning in Boston. Today's the last day people in all parts of the U.S. can access a common abortion pill unless the U.S. Supreme Court intervenes. The Biden administration has asked the court to continue pausing lower court rulings that block access to mifepristone. Groups opposed to abortion want the high court to overturn the FDA's approval of the medication. It's used in most abortions in the U.S. Fox News will pay Dominion Voting Systems nearly $800 million to settle a defamation lawsuit. Fox aired lies about Dominion, repeatedly saying the company helped switch votes away from then-President Trump in the 2020 election. NPR's David Folkenflik says Fox has released a short statement. It says, you know, that Fox acknowledges the court's ruling that certain statements about Dominion voting systems were false. And that's technically true. What it doesn't say is that Fox itself broadcast and at times embraced those claims. Uh, and there's no apology on the air. But that said, it did acknowledge the falsity of it. And the uh, lawyers that I talked to from Dominion last night pointed to that and say, look, that's really important. That's part of the record. And the court has found that and Fox has acknowledged that. NPR's David Folkenflik reporting. A ceasefire fell apart yesterday in Sudan. Fighting has never stopped between the combatants. Michael Koloki reports today is a fifth straight day of chaos and violence. There were reports of gunfire and explosions in various cities overnight as clashes continued between the Sudanese armed forces and the paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces. Both sides have accused each other of violating a 24-hour ceasefire that was due to have commenced yesterday. Meanwhile, in a statement, a local doctor's union said several hospitals across the country were facing a shortage of both medicines and medical personnel, while noting that some hospitals had been closed and their patients evacuated following bombardment of their premises. Leaders from across the region have continued to call on both sides to end the fighting. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. You're listening to NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. More now on the case of the Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking classified documents. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira is due back in court today. The unit that Teixeira worked in has been temporarily stripped of its intelligence mission. The Air Force Inspector General is investigating the 122nd Intelligence Wing. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall said in a Senate hearing yesterday the investigation is broad. We are investigating to see what errors might have occurred or breaches of policy and so on that could have allowed this to happen, in addition to obviously the whatever wrongdoing by the individual. Kendall has ordered a 30-day security review across all Air Force units. Service on the Green Line won't be affected this morning as the T prepares to inspect some of its trains. The inspections were prompted by a train breakdown on Monday that delayed service by more than an hour. T officials say the type of train cars involved were put into service five years ago. An effort to bring the marbled salamander back to the Boston area is showing signs of success. It's native to Massachusetts, but disappeared from the Boston area in the 19th century when its habitat vanished. WBUR's Paolo Mora has more on a seven-year effort. The black-and-white marbled salamander is listed as threatened in the state. So when the Middlesex Fells was reforested, there were no nearby salamander populations to move in. For the past seven years, conservationists have been bringing them from western Massachusetts to the Fells. Emily Wilder is with Zoo New England. It was impossible to know whether what we were doing was actually having an effect. So this year, to actually find evidence that they have survived and are breeding is really incredible. The project has released over 300 salamanders to date and will continue until the population is thriving. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Modem. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. will kick off his 2024 presidential bid in Boston today. The 69-year-old Democrat is the son of Senator Robert Kennedy and nephew of President John F. Kennedy. He's also a prominent anti-vaxxer and runs an anti-vaccine charity. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. The Celtics beat the Atlanta Hawks last night in Game 2 of their playoff series. The final at the Garden was 119-106. to Boston leads two games to none. Game 3 will be Friday night in Atlanta. Tonight at the Garden is Game 2 of the playoff series between the Bruins and the Florida Panthers. The Bees won Game 1 on Monday. And the Red Sox beat the Minnesota Twins last night at Fenway. It was a 5-4 win in 10 innings. Clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be windy, too, in the mid-50s, clearing overnight with temperatures in the 30s, sunny tomorrow, and in the mid-60s. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof. Streams April 20th on Peacock.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. A two-year legal battle came to a conclusion Tuesday when Fox Corp, parent company of Fox News, settled with Dominion Voting Systems over Fox's false claims about the 2020 election. Dominion had initially sought $1.6 billion in damages, saying Fox had harmed its reputation by repeatedly airing false statements about Dominion's voting machines and technology. In preparation for the trial, Dominion found evidence that Fox knew its claims were false, but aired them anyway. In the end, the two sides agreed that Fox will pay Dominion three-quarters of a billion dollars. In a statement, Fox acknowledged that, quote, the court's rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false, unquote, and that the settlement, quote, reflects Fox's continued commitment to the highest journalistic standards, unquote. The truth matters. Lies have consequences. That was Justin Nelson, the co-lead counsel for Dominion, speaking after the settlement was announced, and he is with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Why do you think Fox settled? You know, I think what developed over the course of the case was the evidence, as you mentioned, just the mountains of internal emails and texts that really showed that they knew these election lies were false. I think at the time there was a real question, did they know or did they not know? And I think what the evidence revealed was that they absolutely knew and they did it anyway. And why did Dominion settle, given the strength of the evidence that you'd collected pre-trial? That's a great question. I think from our perspective, we had two real goals in this litigation. The first was accountability. And the second was to have our client have some type of remuneration for just this massive harm that it has received. and. We achieved both of those goals, first on accountability. Over the course of the last several months and the evidence that we developed, as you mentioned, I I think it's now clear what has happened and what was happening behind the scenes. And in terms of remuneration, the number that we reached, we had a couple different models for our damages. One was our base case damages model, and then we had a growth case damages model. And the number that we reached was really all of our base case damages model. Mm. And we receive the money now as opposed to waiting for two, three years after appeal. Mm. So in terms of so bird in hand, bird in hand, in terms of the remuneration side, bird in hand more attractive than possibly uh, uh, jeopardizing Well, it's an 800 million bird in hand. Sure. Well, exactly. So the suit, that $800 million is a big number. Um, It might be a record. Um, We're all still sort of pinning that down. But there was no on-air apology. There does not seem to be any requirement of that. You know, part of the Dominion's argument is that there was harm to its reputation. Without that, can this settlement restore Dominion's reputation, especially among the people who primarily get their news from Fox and who were thus most exposed to these lies? Well, I think so. And there's clearly a problem in this country, right? Dominion got swept into this torrent of lies and conspiracy theories, this alternative universe that of course affected Dominion and election officials all across the country and really harmed democracy. And your question is, unless people hear it over and over again, will they somehow break out of their bubble? And I would say this, Michelle, this is a civil litigation. We can accomplish only so much. We could have gone all the way to a jury verdict and there still wouldn't have been an apology. What we can do 
is forced through the civil litigation mechanism. The accountability through the evidence that we reveal and the money that they pay. And on those, we have achieved it. Mm -hmm. And I think that really we have to continue to be thinking about how we break out of this bubble for all of us. Friendly amendment, though, my question spoke to uh, not hearing it over and over again, but hearing it at all, the people who are most likely to have heard it to begin with. But just just in the minute we have left, can you just talk a little bit about the broader issues that you just surfaced? You know, Fox argued that this uh, loss for them would have had ramifications for the First Amendment, curtailing the ability of people to air even, you know, unpopular opinions. But other people say it means that you can keep spreading lies if you can afford to write a big enough check. Does this decision establish any bright lines in your view, as briefly as you can? Oh, I think this was in the heartland of the First Amendment. I think what this really showed was that the actual malice standard is something that all journalists should embrace. We certainly embraced it. And that what we have here is how we balance the different rights and to make sure that we're protecting the reputation. And so I think what we did is really defend truth. And that, as we said, the truth really does matter and that lies have consequences. And that's totally consistent with the First Amendment. That is Justin Nelson. He's the co-lead counsel for Dominion Voting Systems in its defamation suit now settled against Fox. Mr. Nelson, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. A 21-year-old National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret intelligence documents appears in court again today. The Pentagon, meanwhile, is reviewing the way classified information is distributed. And people are asking why such a junior member of the military had access to such sensitive material. And that's what we're going to ask NPR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie. Greg, uh, the old adage about military secrets is that they're shared on a need-to-know basis. You know, my uncle used to love saying that. He's a Marine. Um, so why would this junior Airman Jack to share a need to know. Well, a, after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, need to know became need to share. The belief was the government, the military, and intelligence agencies weren't doing enough sharing. They were hoarding their own intelligence, and no one was connecting the dots. So we've seen this huge expansion of the national security system. Homeland Security was created. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence was established, and it oversees all 18 intelligence agencies now. All right. So then is the U.S. getting its money's worth? I mean, is the country getting better intelligence? Well, of course, this leak was very embarrassing, and the Pentagon is in damage control mode right now. But these documents do show how thoroughly U.S. intelligence has penetrated Russia's military communications network. The U.S. has consistently provided Ukraine with this detailed, up-to-date information on Russian military plans, which is a huge benefit to Ukraine on the battlefield. And I spoke about this with Thomas Ridd. He's a cyber expert and a professor at Johns Hopkins University. One of the conclusions clearly is the U.S. intelligence community, especially those parts of the intelligence community that produce technical intelligence, signals intelligence, are really delivering the goods. Now, he says Russia will try to change the way it communicates based on what it's learned from these documents. But the Russians knew the Americans had penetrated their networks from the very beginning of the war, and they haven't been able to fix this problem over the past year. 
All right, so it sounds like the U.S. is gathering very good intel, but uh, does this leak then show that maybe too many people have access to it? Yeah, there's around 3 million Americans who have security clearances, including more than a million with top-secret clearance, and, and one of them was Teixeira. He was essentially an IT worker. He kept the computers humming along, so he needed access to these computers, but not to the content of these documents. And, and several high-profile leaks over the past decades have often involved 20-somethings with this kind of access. And Thomas Ridd said this isn't an easy problem for the government to fix. Young people, meaning staffers and lower-ranking officers, they often produce that information. They are the analysts. They are the worker bees. So I don't think we can just say young people shouldn't have access. That would be too short-sighted. Yeah, but 20-year-olds love to share everything about their lives, Greg. So are we maybe likely to see a return of the old way of doing business, back to need to know? Well, we're already seeing some changes. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has ordered a review of the handling of classified documents, the place where the accused leaker, Jack Teixeira, worked, the 102nd Intelligence Wing at Otis Air Force National Guard Base on Cape Cod is no longer performing its intelligence mission. That's been assigned to another part of the Air Force. NPR's Greg Myrie, thanks. Sure thing, eh? 84-year-old Andrew Lester turned himself into authorities Tuesday for shooting a black teenager. Lester, who is white, told authorities he shot Ralph Yarl out of fear after Yarl rang Lester's doorbell by mistake. Lester is now out on bond. Activists in Kansas City held a rally to protest the initial delay in arresting the shooter and to call for a strict sentence. Reporter Beck Shackelford Wanganga was there. Civil rights leaders and activists packed a park in downtown Kansas City to demand justice for 16-year-old Ralph Yarl. They called on the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate the shooting as a hate crime. Activist Dee Porter says North Kansas City, where she lives and where the shooting happened, and the rest of the country has an issue with racism. We're still where we were. Sometimes I question, are we in 1956 or... Are we in 2023 because this is constantly happening? Vanessa Harris, Yarl's cousin, was at the rally. She says she and her cousin are really close and she hurts for him. Lester was charged with assault in the first degree and armed criminal action, both felonies. But Harris and many others at the rally say that's not enough. The guy should be Andrew Lester. He should be charged with attempted murder and not just assault because he shot him and he could have died right there in cold blood. Lester's bail was set at $200,000, but he posted $20,000 in cash and was released. Yarl is a talented musician and high school student. He's from a tight-knit Liberian community in Kansas City. Many of his community members, like Denise Dia, came to show their support Tuesday. Dia says she lives in a primarily white neighborhood with her small daughters, and she worries they'll experience racism, too. You're, like, on edge. There's no way to relax. And make, you know, even when your kids are at school, there's no place safe. This is not the America that we've fled our country to come to. Dia says this isn't the first time she's protested for racial justice in America. She took part in the 2020 protests following George Floyd's death. But this time, the protests hit closer to home, and Dia says they won't give up until justice is served. Dia says although Jarl has been released from the hospital and is recovering at home, he will never again have a normal childhood. For NPR News, I'm Beck Shackleford Wanganga in Kansas City.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in four minutes on Morning Edition, the Supreme Court takes up the issue of when threats on social media should be considered a crime. Then at 7.40, U.S. House members held a hearing yesterday to demand answers about the many reported instances of exploitation of migrant children. It's 7.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, his grandfather marched alongside Martin Luther King Jr., He runs point for the Boston Celtics and strives to walk in his ancestors' footsteps off the court. Meet NBA star Malcolm Brogdon. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Increasingly cloudy today and a high near 56. The clouds hang around tonight and we'll have a low around 38. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 68. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 720. WBUR City Space is marking Earth Week with a focus on Hollywood. This Friday night, take a look at what movies get right and wrong when it comes to climate change. It'll be an interactive experience led by podcast host Ben Brock Johnson. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Fisher Investments, As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. This week, NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg has been taking us inside current Supreme Court cases. Today, the justices are revisiting a question the court has actually never answered. What does the prosecution have to prove to convict someone of making, quote unquote, true threats? Nina spoke with the woman at the center of the case. And it's not that I'm not afraid, no, the terror is still near. Coles Whalen is a singer-songwriter from Denver, Colorado. I've toured the United States and the world playing my music. Um, dedicated over 10 years to building my music career. And then I started to receive thousands and thousands of messages from a man I'd never met. That man was Billy Counterman, who would later be convicted of the crime of stalking and making true threats and sentenced to four and a half years in prison. 
His messages to Whalen began in 2010 and then heated up to a full boil in 2014 when police estimate he sent over a thousand messages to the singer. Messages that ranged from affectionate to angry and aggressive and gave the impression he was watching her. He was clearly mentally unstable. He believed that we were in a romantic relationship that lasted a number of years. He indicated that he was seeing me in person without me knowing, and I was terrified. At one point, he inquired about her mother after Whalen had just paid her a visit. At another, he wrote, die, don't need you. At another, I'm currently unsupervised. I know it freaks me out, too. Whalen repeatedly blocked him from her Facebook account, but he would just create new accounts, even contacting her bandmates about her. She became so scared that he would come out of a crowd at her on stage that she stopped publicizing her appearances, varied her roots, on one occasion hired a bodyguard, and bought a pepper spray gun that she keeps with her to this day. Her anxiety only increased when she learned that Counterman had served two jail terms for far more explicit violent threats against his ex-wife and family. But even after he was arrested, her fear persisted. Her first panic attack came in Dallas when she was performing in front of about 300 people. I thought I might be having a heart attack. And I had to leave the stage, which I've never done in all my years of performing. Um... When I went backstage, I mean, I just sobbed for an hour. I felt so horrible. I thought, maybe this isn't worth it. Maybe I shouldn't continue. The legal issues in today's case are pretty bloodless compared to Whalen's story. The First Amendment protects freedom of speech, but there are exceptions. Obscenity, fighting words, shouting fire in a crowded theater, and what the court has called true threats. The question in this case is whether the definition of a true threat is in the eye of a reasonable beholder, or is it in the eye of the writer of the messages? Lawyer John Elwood, who's representing Counterman in the Supreme Court, points out that his client has been diagnosed as suffering from mental illness and didn't know he was frightening Whalen. If you look back to really the early days of Anglo-American law, there is a long tradition that if you are going to regulate speech on the grounds that it is threatening, that that is based on the intent of the speaker, the knowledge of the speaker, that it's not just based on the way a reasonable person would interpret it. Essentially, what this does is criminalizes misunderstandings. To illustrate the point, he notes that if you hit somebody accidentally, you may bruise that person, but that's not a crime. But if you hit someone on purpose, that is a crime. The First Amendment, he argues, doesn't allow the state to punish a person based on what a reasonable person receiving the message might think. The question is what the speaker intends. That argument is supported by a variety of civil liberties groups. The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, for instance, points to several examples of journalists being charged under stalking laws for leaving voicemail messages for public officials or approaching them at home to get responses for stories. And the ACLU argues that political hyperbole can often be mistaken as a genuine threat. Without a demonstration of intent to scare, the organization argues, one person's opprobrium may be another's threat. And the fact that many of these statements occur online further underscores the need for a subjective intent requirement. 
Colorado Attorney General Philip Weiser counters that under Colorado law, the question is whether an objective person in the situation of the victim would feel threatened. And he notes that's what the trial was about in Counterman's case. Since the founding of the Republic, we've had threat statutes that have allowed the prosecution of threats without regard to the specific intent of the person making the threats. And he points to briefs in the case filed by victims' rights organizations and studies that show that for the victim, the psychological effects of threatening behavior is frequently far worse than an actual assault. We're living at a time of rising demonization and of threats of physical violence and actual physical violence. It's important that the law be able to respond. Indeed, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's abortion decision, the justices themselves have experienced a large increase in threats. As for Whalen, even after Counterman's conviction, she couldn't shake her fear. I truly expected to get back out there and to be the same me, the old me that I've been performing all of these years. And a great shock to me was to learn that I was not that person anymore. And I was going to have to find another way to perform um, as this new person that I had become through this traumatic experience. Initially, she gave up performing, moved away, found a great therapist, got married, and has two children now. And she has clawed her way back psychologically to now perform again, though sometimes tremulously. She's written a song called Stronger. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. There's power in being the one to rise. I tolerate nothing. I never lie. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, Senate Republicans have blocked an effort by Democrats to replace California Senator Dianne Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee as she recovers from shingles. It's 729. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Access to the abortion drug Mifepristone could become heavily restricted in much of the country if the U.S. Supreme Court chooses not to intervene before the end of the day. NPR's Sarah McCammon says the pill has remained available under an emergency stay following lower court rulings, including one in Texas. In its request for an emergency stay last week, the DOJ described the litigation in this case as troubling and argued that the lower court orders would be disruptive and would, quote, profoundly harm women, the nation's health care system, FDA, and the public interest. 
Lawyers for the FDA as well as outside experts have noted that it would be unprecedented for a court to overturn a drug approval that has been in place for more than two decades, as this one has, and has been used you know, internationally for longer than that and has a well-established safety record. Groups opposed to abortion rights are seeking to overturn the FDA's approval of mifepristone. Dominion Voting Systems has settled its defamation lawsuit against Fox News. The network will pay the company $787 million for claiming Dominion tried to rig the 2020 presidential election for Joe Biden. Authorities in New York are investigating yesterday's collapse of a parking garage near City Hall. It left one person dead and five others injured. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston's air quality is getting better. For the first time, the city's metropolitan area received a passing grade for ozone pollution. That's according to the American Lung Association's 24th Annual State of the Air Report. The last four-year for-profit college in Massachusetts is set to close at the end of August. Accreditors revoked their approval of Bay State College, citing mismanagement and strained finances. And as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, that's bad news for dozens of students in the school's well-regarded nursing program. Bay State Nursing was a small but mighty program with high diversity, high placement rates, and high scores on nursing licensure exams. Students say they weren't conscious of problems with the larger college. And first-year nursing student Jocelyn Berard says statements from administrators didn't help. We were told really good things like, you know, we're coming at the end of the tunnel. We're financially stable enough to continue. And I was not aware of how bad things were. Many first-year nurses transferred out, leaving a dozen or so to pick between three other Boston-area nursing programs to continue their degrees after August. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The Mashpee Wampanoag tribe on the Cape is mourning the loss of its chief. Vernon Silent Drum Lopez died earlier this month. He was 100 years old. Lopez led the tribe since 1998. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Celtics now lead the Hawks two games to none in their playoff series. Boston beat Atlanta last night 119 to 106. Tonight it's game two of the playoff series between the Bruins and the Florida Panthers. And last night the Red Sox beat the Minnesota Twins 5 to 4 in 10 innings. In your forecast, skies will grow more overcast throughout the day today. We'll have highs in the mid 50s. Tonight it falls to the upper 30s, clearing over night for mostly sunny skies tomorrow with highs in the upper 60s. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C., where Senate Republicans have blocked an effort from Democrats to temporarily replace Senator Dianne Feinstein, the California Democrat, on the Senate Judiciary Committee, with another Democrat, of course. Feinstein is recuperating from shingles and has not voted since February. She's facing pressure from a handful of House Democrats to resign. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer sidestepped a question on whether Feinstein should consider stepping down. I spoke to Senator Feinstein just a few days ago, and she and I are both very hopeful that she will return very soon. But for now, without Feinstein's vote on the committee, it means that President Biden's judicial nominees are stalled. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is with us this morning to tell us more about this. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So what is the Republicans' argument for why they oppose the effort to replace Feinstein, at least on this temporary basis? Well, the top Senate Republican, Mitch McConnell, argued yesterday that most of President Biden's judicial nominees have bipartisan support inside the Judiciary Committee. But McConnell says a small fraction, in his view, are too extreme. So he didn't want to help Democrats get them through by swapping in someone else to take her place. Well, let's be clear. Senate Republicans will not take part in sidelining a temporary absent colleague off a committee just so Democrats can force through their very worst nominees. McConnell has made confirming conservative judges a huge priority during his career, and we can see how important Trump-appointed judges on the federal bench have already been on impacting issues like abortion. By blocking the ability of Democrats to confirm some of Biden's nominees on a party line, which is how a lot of conservative judges got through under McConnell's leadership, McConnell and Republicans can block some of Biden's picks off the courts. You know, it's interesting, though, Deirdre, that Republicans have also had senators missing votes due to illness or other medical issues, right? Yes, including McConnell, who was just out for a few weeks when he was recovering from a concussion. Maine Independent Senator Angus King told me it's easy to see how the situation could be reversed. So he was just disappointed that Republicans blocked this. So do the Democrats have a plan about what to do now? It's unclear. One Democrat, Richard Blumenthal, who serves on the Judiciary Committee, told me that they're looking at rules and tools to press ahead with the president's nominees. But he said they're still discussing those and what next steps they can take. But for now, the vacancy on that committee means some nominees are going to be deadlocked. And this could really ramp up pressure on Feinstein to resign. We already saw some House Democrats call for that last week. And, and what about that? Is there? Do you see any new movement in that direction, any new uh, voices calling for Feinstein to step down? You know, so far, it's really been confined to a small group in the House. No Senate Democrat is going there right now. And as you noted earlier, Schumer continues to say, and other Democrats have been saying, they hope that Feinstein will be back soon. Democrats in the Senate instead are really criticizing Republicans for not extending what they see as a courtesy to a veteran Senator Feinstein, who has good relationships on both sides of the aisle. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren was really incensed when she was talking to reporters about this yesterday. And the Republicans, instead of extending that courtesy to this woman who has served so honorably, are saying no way, they want to play politics all the time. Senate Democrats for now continue to say Feinstein's decision about what happens next is up to her, and they're really willing to give her some space. But Michelle, that might not last forever. There are some Senate Democrats like Amy Klobuchar who have said the okay. longer Feinstein is out, it impacts the committee and the country. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, thank you so much. Thank you.
Images of kids sleeping in small cells in overcrowded facilities gained international attention in recent years as record numbers of unaccompanied children cross the southern border. Now, to fix this, government officials work with sponsors to house them as they make their way through the immigration system. But the thing is, that system is under scrutiny. Reports show the government lost track of 85,000 migrant children, and some of those children may have been forced into labor in the U.S., Hearings this week are expected to be part of a series of congressional efforts investigating this issue. Joining us now is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. So what concerns did lawmakers raise about the vetting process that puts these minors with sponsors here in the U.S.? Right. Republican Glenn Grothman, he chairs a House Oversight Subcommittee, says that while it is the responsibility of this program under the Health and Human Services Department to place these child migrants in the care of sponsors, there are concerns that these children were released in, quote, assembly line speed to poorly vetted sponsors instead. The director of this program, which is called the Office of Refugee Resettlement, defended the agency's actions, saying recently, that the vast majority of the unaccompanied minors in their care were placed with a close family member, but lawmakers said that was not enough to ensure their safety. Yeah, meanwhile, the New York Times cited significant cases of kids who disappeared and became victims of child labor. So how did the director respond to that reporting? Right. This director, Robin Dunn Marco, said that they need Congress's help to address this problem. She said they are not equipped to track these children after they are placed in new homes and need funding. I think continued support in expanding post-release services and legal services are critical to providing um, care for these children. Several Republicans, however, kept highlighting this figure you mentioned, which was reported by the New York Times, that this program lost track of 85,000 children in the first two years of the Biden administration. And what are they saying? The White House said yesterday through Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre that this is unacceptable and they are calling on Congress to make fixes. The House Oversight Subpanel's top Democrat, Robert Garcia, touched on what that could look like. We also need to have a serious conversation about how we make sure that we're fully enforcing our labor laws and holding corporations accountable when they knowingly and illegally profit from child labor. So I personally support legislation to crack down on these unethical employers. Democrats also defended the role of the Biden White House, saying it's been a difficult transition from how migrant children were treated under the previous Trump administration, where we saw these images of children being held in these fenced off areas. And I know these hearings are, are very politicized, often politicized, uh, but we're talking about kids working dangerous jobs in some cases. I mean, is there any bipartisan solutions being offered at this point for this problem? Not at this point. It's going to be a really, really tall order for for Congress. Republicans say that a crackdown on border security is the answer here, and several noted that the House Judiciary Committee will now begin work on a GOP border security bill, but we do not expect that to go far with a Democratic-controlled Senate and White House. House Democrats are asking for a bipartisan solution, but that's going to be really difficult for Congress to get on the same page here. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thanks a lot. Thank you much.
This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. In just a few minutes at 745, we'll have a story about a new exhibit in Boston that asks what we should do with problematic monuments from troubled times in history. And in your forecast, increasingly overcast and a bit windy today with temperatures rising to the mid-50s. Still cloudy tonight and it falls to the upper 30s. Clearing skies overnight make way for a mostly sunny day tomorrow in the upper 60s. Right now it's 43 degrees in Boston at 742. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Weston Nurseries, welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinton, Chelmsford, and Hingham, westonnurseries.com. The number of home houses for sale in Massachusetts is down 16 percent compared to a year ago. The Massachusetts Association of Realtors reports high interest rates and are preventing people from selling. Prices are also up compared to last year. The median selling price for a single-family home hit $565,000 last month, up 3 percent from a year ago. Massachusetts finance leaders say they're glad the state's bond rating has gotten better. The Standard & Poor's global rating brought the state's credit rating up from AA to AA+, last week. Officials had been trying to improve the rating since 2017. It was lowered at that time because the state didn't have enough money in its savings. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Simone Lee became the first black woman to represent the U.S. at the Venice Biennale last year. Her work takes on complicated topics like race and gender and explores them in bronze, clay, and ceramics. The pieces she created for the Biennale are on display for the first time in the U.S. at Boston's Institute of Contemporary Art. The artist walked through the exhibit with WBUR's Arielle Gray. Before you step foot into Simone Lee's exhibition, you hear the gentle trill of a wooden flute. Then the deep pulse of a drum. The sound is from My Dreams, My Works Must Wait Till After Hell, one of 29 pieces in the exhibit. The drum sounds like a heartbeat as you enter and come face to face with Cupboard. It's a seven-foot-tall, golden bronze sculpture with a wide raffia skirt and the torso of a woman. These are actual hands of raffia that um, I purchased in Madagascar and had shipped to me. And um, they was saturated in clay and laid over a form. Lee drew inspiration from photos of a Mississippi restaurant called Mammy's Cupboard. It's built in the shape of a mammy a racist stereotype of black womanhood. Even though there you know, includes a lot of, of darkness in these archetypes, especially this idea of the restaurant where you would actually enter the skirt and you know, have pleasure eating food inside this woman's body, all those things are really interesting in me and I think is why I've been sort of thinking about that kind of combination of forms and what it does. This process of retrieving the past and centering it in the present surfaces again and again. She speaks on this as we stand in front of a cream-colored ceramic sculpture of a headless woman. 
It's a nod to a decapitated statue of Napoleon Bonaparte's wife that Lee saw while visiting Martinique. In some ways, this piece is a part of our current conversations about monuments and what should happen to them, especially um, artifacts of the colonial era in the Caribbean, um, as well as you know what we've been talking about here in the U.S. What should we do with public art that memorializes our dark past? Lee found solace when she attended Martinique's carnival, where she witnessed the burning of an effigy. I've been thinking, as I've been thinking about what my response is to all the questions we have around monuments and public space especially and what they should be and do, I thought that this was the most brilliant idea of a way a community could um, create a monument is actually to think of something that we all need to get rid of and to burn it. And then we make new ones. The last garment, the next to last piece in the exhibit is not technically a monument. In many ways it is. It's a bronze sculpture of a woman bent over washing clothing. Surrounding her is a massive pool of dark, still water. I used an archival image and I used something that has been used as, as a souvenir um, to also circulate ideas around the black body, black people, and what we're here to do and what we mean. Lee is able to hand some autonomy back to her. Her gaze is firmly set on her own reflection, unconcerned about who may be looking. She is an avatar of sorts for all of the black women whose names are lost to time. For Lee, it's... The practice of focusing on oneself, one's own communities, one's own history, one's own tools as a form of recovery and resistance. Lee's art has been just that, a form of resistance. As the first black woman to represent the U.S. at the Venice Biennale, she has forever made history. But Lee knows that for black women, history often comes too late. The generation previous to me, you know, like 15, 25 years older than me, those black women got nothing. You know, they did real work to get me here. So while I have this, like, feeling of joy, it's also kind of sobering. Simone Lee's work is at the ICA until September 4th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a few minutes, author Julia Lee talks about growing up and sorting out her cultural identity as an Asian American. Her memoir is called Biting the Hand. And at 8.10, an administrative stay from the Supreme Court expires later today, putting access to the abortion pill mifepristone in jeopardy. Again, it's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd. chch.org slash open house. 
Nigella Lawson has so many recipes, you could go a year without repeating one of them. Nathan Young wanted to try that. By kind of choosing a food writer and sticking with the same food writer, you'd learn to trust them over time, and you just kind of basically hand guidance over to them. A young dad challenged himself to cook 365 of his favorite chef's recipes. How he did it and how Lawson responded on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Violence between rival military groups in Sudan has reached the country's capital airport following a failed ceasefire. Fox News will pay nearly $790 million to settle a defamation lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems. The 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking highly classified documents will appear in Boston Federal Court today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. Mid-50s today under skies that will grow increasingly overcast. Upper 30s tonight, then clearing overnight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and upper 60s. It's 43 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Julia Lee grew up in Los Angeles. Her parents are Korean immigrants who followed the path of so many before them, working long hours at back-breaking, sometimes dangerous jobs to give their children a chance at the American dream, access to exclusive prep schools and Ivy League universities, prestigious jobs, an escape from want. But eventually, she came to believe something was missing. And what was missing was a sense of who she was and where she fit in, in a country that seemed to see whiteness as the standard by which all else should be judged and to expect gratitude from everyone else for their proximity to it. She writes about this in her new book, Biting the Hand. So the book's title really is about, you know, all of the structures of power and systems of power in this world that make those of us in marginalized positions feel like we can't speak out, we can't resist, and that one of our obligations is to bite back, to bite the hand that feeds us in order to speak up for justice, for social justice. She told me what it felt like to always have to explain herself to people. I'm really trying to figure out why I'm not legible, while I'm not visible or readable to other people. And by this, I mean often white people or the way in which our culture has centered a white experience sort of looks at those of us, people of color, anyone who is non-white, in a very narrow or very kind of monolithic way. And so when people look at me, they see somebody who is foreign or they see somebody who is vaguely, quote unquote, oriental. And there's the sense that we're all the same or that we can all be slotted into one category. I think this will be relieving to some to hear somebody talk about this. I think it will be shocking to others. Mm -hmm. The self-loathing that you talk about and also the loathing that you sometimes direct at other people of Asian descent. Right. You talked about people that you rejected as either too white or too Asian. And this is, these are your words here, as if we were playing a game of Goldilocks and we were the only ones who were just right. Mm-hmm. What's that about? When you're in a position in which you are a distinct minority, then there's a sense in which within a majority white culture, you do start to see other people of color as rivals rather than as allies because there is so little space for you. There's such scarcity. And so you fight with other people who are of your same identity in order to get the spoils 
I would say it's evil and it's destructive, but it's another way in which living within a society of systemic racism punishes and really, I think, harms. It's toxic. It harms the marginalized people that are trying to survive within that culture. You tell just some really painful stories. There's this one girl who you talk about is Esther, who was very comfortable with her Koreanness. You know, she did all the things, you know, right. get good grades and did the Korean cultural events and was really tight with her family. But she was racist toward black people. Yes. And then you talk about this girl named Priya, who you say somehow managed to be really well liked by a lot of your white classmates. Mm -hmm. But this came at the cost of intense self-deprecation. Yes. You talk about her like erasing the board one day and being covered with chalk and saying, just what I've always wanted to be, white. And you're like, oh, no, really? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And stories like that, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to share those stories because, and part of me hates often reading other stories about people of color who go through this period of self-loathing because now that I'm sort of older and wiser, you know, I just want to reach out and say, stop it, stop it. Don't do this. Don't deprecate yourself. But what I've realized is that it's foolish to blame the victim because that is what it is. The victim, the person is just trying to survive. And so when they develop this sense of self-hatred, that's because the system has taught them to hate themselves. It's not their quote unquote fault that they don't have more race pride or something like that. And again, I, you know, I'm incredibly raw in these depictions and I'm incredibly ashamed still that I felt this way about some of these classmates. But I also recognize that I was taught to react this way to these people who should have been my allies and should have been united with me in trying to push against these expectations. So now where do you think you fit? That position of invisibility or erasure, feeling like I don't fit into black or white, so who am I? I'm invisible, is actually an incredible position of power. Um, Kathy Park Hong, who is an Asian American poet and writer, she talks about how invisibility can be weaponized. Um, Ralph Ellison, great African-American novelist, also writes about how invisibility can be weaponized in his famous work, Invisible Man. And I think this is something that Asian Americans, yes, we might reside in what is considered a position of existential invisibility. And yet that also makes us incredibly powerful and subversive because nobody is looking at us and we are looking at everything. But then you can also very much understand the experience of being in the spotlight, being racially visible, being, you know, taunted or oppressed. And you can speak to that experience too and also know what it's like to find solidarity and love in a community of people of color. You still feel that way after the experience we've had in the last couple of years of people being targeted? Yes. With just vicious physical assault because of their Asian-ness. Yes. I say mm -hmm. this in the book because, you know, I am a Debbie Downer. I am a depressive. I'm somebody who's always just like, we're screwed. Like, we are screwed. I just want to lie down and die. And and, and believe oh, no. me, I feel this way regularly. That being said, I also find incredible solace and inspiration, and I believe this with all my heart, that young people today, like, we will be okay. The young people I know are not... Yes, some of them feel, you know, incredible anger and frustration, but they also have this capacity to make connections across race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity. I mean, it's incredible. And they 
do have an ability to think more flexibly than those of us who may be older and more jaded. I do see incredibly inspiring moments, even despite all of this tragedy that has happened. I've seen the ways in which, you know, Black women have stood up to support their Asian American women, colleagues and friends who have experienced hate and oppression. And I write about how in the aftermath of the George Floyd protests, going to these demonstrations and marches and seeing a very racially diverse group of supporters, including young Asian Americans who are standing up and saying, no, this this hate against Black people does not just affect Black people. It affects all of us. And we are standing up in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. Julia Lee's latest book is called Biting the Hand, Growing Up Asian in Black and White America. Julia Lee, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Fox News has agreed to pay nearly $790 million to settle a lawsuit that could have set a landmark legal standard for media companies. It's Wednesday, April 19th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... If the Supreme Court doesn't step in, the majority of the mifepristone supply could disappear. An administrative stay from the Supreme Court in a federal case out of Texas expires today, once again putting access to the abortion pill mifepristone at risk. Also, we hear from students who've been left in the lurch as Bay State College prepares to close. I mean, I feel guilty. I'm 29. I should have my life together. I should start a family, and I can't do that. And this hour, how some New Hampshire towns are trying to combat high power rates. We're sort of taking the uh, hood, opening up the hood on how the electric system works. Increasingly cloudy today in the mid-50s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Today's the deadline for the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a ruling over a challenge to a common abortion pill. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the Biden administration is challenging a lower court ruling that could block people's access to mifepristone. The White House has blasted the ruling issued by a federal judge in Texas that would suspend the use of mifepristone in all 50 states. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration will keep working to protect reproductive rights regardless of the court's decision. The president and the vice president will continue to fight for fundamental freedoms. We're talking about fundamental freedoms uh, for women, and this is something that the president or this vice president is not going to back away from. The White House and many legal experts argue that revoking the longstanding approval of mifepristone undermines the government's regulatory authority and sets a dangerous precedent. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A Massachusetts Air National Guardsman will appear in federal court today in Boston. Jack Teixeira is accused of leaking classified Pentagon documents online. Today's hearing will determine if he will remain jailed until his trial. A white Kansas City, Missouri man will be arraigned later today on charges of shooting a black teenager in the head. The boy had mistakenly approached the wrong front door when Andrew Lester apparently shot him. Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas says Lester is facing charges of first-degree assault and armed criminal action. I think there are very serious charges that have been filed here. I am a lawyer, but I don't know the full panoply of potential charges at issue. What I do know is that the 84-year-old defendant, Andrew Lester, faces up to life imprisonment with the charges that have been filed. Mm -hmm. I, I expect him to be convicted. He spoke to NPR's All Things Considered. The teenager, Ralph Yarl, is recovering from his wounds at home. In Texas, a legislative panel is considering a bill that would increase the minimum age to purchase a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21. The measure comes a month before the anniversary of the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 students and two teachers were killed. From the Texas newsroom, Sergio Martinez-Beltran has more. The Rob Elementary School shooter bought a pair of AR-15 rifles days after he turned 18, the minimum age to purchase such weapons. Belmalisa Duran, the sister of slain teacher Irma Garcia, wants the Texas legislature to raise the minimum age to buy these long rifles. I know that the killer of the Uvalde massacre, had it been, you know, the age been 21, he wouldn't have been able to purchase this. But despite Duran's pleading, the bill's future is grim. Republican leaders in Texas say changing the age to purchase a semi-automatic weapon is unconstitutional. For NPR News, I'm Sergio Martinez-Beltran in Austin. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. More now on the case of the Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking classified documents. Jack Teixeira is due in court this morning. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports that Teixeira has been held since he was arrested at his home in Dighton last Thursday. The hearing today will determine whether 21-year-old Teixeira should remain in custody while awaiting trial. He's facing multiple charges of unauthorized removal and retention of classified information. The case is the biggest and most widely watched U.S. intelligence leak in years. Investigators say Teixeira took home top-secret documents related to the war in Ukraine and U.S. spycraft. They say he took photos of the documents and posted them in an online chat group. From there, the classified information spread to more public social media sites. Teixeira hasn't yet entered a plea. If found guilty, he faces up to 15 years in prison. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. The T says it does not plan to disrupt service as it inspects its Green Line cars. The inspections were prompted by a train breakdown on Monday that delayed service for more than an hour. T officials say they're looking at cars that were put into service five years ago. Officials say they're investigating the massive fire at a Cambridge church on Easter Sunday as arson. No one was hurt in the fire at Faith Lutheran Church, but the building's steeple was brought down. The FBI is helping with the investigation.
The city of Medford is trying to combat the effects of climate change by planting more trees. It aims to plant more than 200 trees this year. That's on top of the 180 planted last year. The city's tree warden, Aggie Tuden, says the city is planting new types of trees in order to keep up with the changing climate. Now we're planting trees that were planted, for example, further down the East Coast, but now our climate's changing here. So some of those trees are being planted in our area because they can uh, survive. Some of the trees' locations will be determined by public requests. Others will be placed in so-called environmental justice communities like South Medford. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting Riverside Community Care, helping make a difference in the community by delivering innovative and compassionate behavioral health care and human services. More at riversidecc.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Celtics now lead two games to none over the Hawks in their playoff series. Boston beat Atlanta 119-106 last night at the Garden. Game three will be Friday. Tonight at the Garden, it's game two in the playoff series between the Bruins and the Florida Panthers. And the Red Sox beat the Twins last night at Fenway. The final was 5-4 and 10 innings. In your forecast, clouds move in throughout the day today. It'll be windy, too, in the mid-50s, clearing overnight with temperatures in the 30s, sunny tomorrow, and in the mid-60s. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. All right, around midnight tonight, access to abortion pills could be heavily restricted in some states. That's unless the U.S. Supreme Court intervenes. Mifepristone has remained available under an emergency stay requested by the Biden administration after an appeals court order that would have restricted the drug. NPR Sarah McCammon joins us now for a look at what could happen next. Uh, so, Sarah, what is the Biden administration asking the Supreme Court to do? Well, first, it's important to understand that anti-abortion groups are trying to overturn the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the abortion pill mifepristone, and they've gotten a couple of favorable rulings from lower courts. Those are the ones on hold. So the Biden administration is asking the Supreme Court to put those rulings and any restrictions on mifepristone on hold for a longer period of time to allow for the case to be more fully argued in court. Now, in its request for an emergency stay last week, the DOJ described the litigation in this case as troubling and argued that the lower court orders would be disruptive and would, quote, profoundly harm women, the nation's healthcare system, FDA, and the public interest. Lawyers for the FDA, as well as outside experts, have noted that it would be unprecedented for a court to overturn a drug approval that has been in place for more than two decades, as this one has, and has been used you know, internationally for longer than that, and has a well-established safety record. What are anti-abortion groups arguing? Well, most abortions in the U.S. involve pills, and mifepristone is used in nearly all medication abortions. So some of the plaintiffs in this federal case out of Texas are doctors who oppose abortion, and they say this widespread access to the pills means they sometimes have to care for patients experiencing complications, which they say violates their beliefs. They object to the FDA's original approval of mifepristone back in 2000, as well as some rule changes that have made it more available since then, like letting pills be sent in the mail. 
And they cite the Comstock Act, and that's a 19th century anti-obscenity law that prohibits sending anything related to abortion in the mail. Now, the Department of Justice said last year that doesn't apply if pills are intended for legal use, but anti-abortion groups want the Supreme Court to affirm that Comstock does apply in that way. And by the way, legal experts say that interpretation could lead to nationwide abortion restrictions if the court accepts it. All right, Supreme Court then, what might they do next? Well, if the Supreme Court does nothing, an appeals court ruling would take effect that would limit access to the drugs. So in addition to prohibiting the pills from being distributed by mail, it would mean mifepristone could only be prescribed up to seven weeks of pregnancy instead of 10, and it could require drug makers to relabel the pills as a result. The appeals court ruling I just mentioned would also appear to overturn the FDA's approval of a generic form of mifepristone. Carrie Flaxman is a lawyer with Planned Parenthood. She says all of that could have a major impact on the supply chain. That means that if the Supreme Court doesn't step in and block the decisions below, the majority of the mifepristone supply could disappear. Just to be clear, this judicial ping pong game impacting the accessibility of safe, effective, decades-long approved medication is causing chaos and confusion. It appears those new restrictions I just mentioned would apply in a majority of states, but not all. That's because 17 states and the District of Columbia are involved in a competing federal lawsuit in Washington state. And for states where abortion is legal, there is a second drug called misoprostol that's usually used together with mifepristone in the U.S., And that two-pill regimen is preferred, but misoprostol can be used alone. And some providers have said they're ready to move in that direction if they lose access to mifepristone. NPR's Sarah McCammon, thanks a lot. Thank you. In January of this year, the Biden administration unveiled a new app specifically for asylum seekers and other migrants without valid visas. CBP-1 is supposed to help alleviate the crisis at the southern border. But the app, which users say constantly glitches or produces error messages, is what often stands between migrants and their dream of finding safety in the U.S. NPR's Ader Peralta has this report from Matamoros, Mexico. Just off the banks of the Rio Grande, a huge migrant encampment has sprung up. It's dotted with makeshift tents, and at 9.45 every morning, anticipation builds. One man announces that today is the day everyone gets an appointment on the CBP-1 app. Of course, that's a dream, because as the number of migrants seeking asylum at the U.S. southern border has skyrocketed, the U.S. has allowed fewer migrants into the country by putting up restrictions. The latest is this app. Something always goes wrong, says Ender Prieto. Sometimes it's a spinning wheel, others it's an error, other times it rejects their pictures. But without the app, you can't get into the U.S. And the app is so particular, the migrants now have superstitions. They put on the same clothes, the same hat, they take their picture in the same place because they believe the app verifies identity using a photo. 9.58, two minutes to go. They stare at their phones and at 10, they click desperately. Junai Islaya seems to have good luck. Take the picture fast. She does, but the app spits out an error. It's over for them, but across the camp, we hear commotion. A Venezuelan family, Jason David, his wife and his two girls, secured a family appointment. 
It's been five years since they left Venezuela. The whole camp surrounds them. They cry, they hug, they laugh. They don't have family in the U.S., but they have dreams. He imagines safety, a chance to work, a chance for his girls to go to school. Less than a decade ago, these migrant camps did not exist in Mexico. But as the asylum process in the U.S. got harder, many migrants were stranded. Tyler Matiache of Human Rights Watch says this is part of a worldwide trend narrowing the rights of asylum seekers. We see it in the U.K., we see it in Europe, this rejection of people's basic right to seek international protection. The Biden administration says its policies and this app make the trip north safer. Migrants can now cross legally when they have an appointment. But Matiache says it does just the opposite. The Venezuelans, the Cubans, the Haitians, and Nicaraguans amassing at the border don't have the luxury of deciding when they want to travel. They're fleeing, and the app forces them to wait in unsafe places, in unsafe circumstances, and it violates international law. The law, says Matiache, gives asylum seekers a basic right to have their cases heard. This new app system makes decisions based on things that have nothing to do with their asylum cases. For the others in the camp, reality quickly sets in. Yuli fled Venezuela, she says, because both her dad, a military officer, and her husband physically abused her. I asked her if she had applied for an appointment. No, se me quemó el teléfono. No, she says. Her phone screen is dead. Yuli, we're only using her first name because she fears her dad could track her down, says she had actually gotten an appointment on that phone a few weeks earlier, but she was turned away at the border. Her son had chicken pox. The border agent said it was monkey pox. For months, she had carefully carried folders with documents ready to present her asylum case. They don't let you talk, she says. Her mind wanders. In this camp, she hears gunfire. There's no running water, no toilets. I have nothing to feed my children, she says. She doesn't have any money to buy a new phone. Sometimes she thinks about just jumping into the Rio Grande. Maybe they'll send her back home. Maybe, she thinks, the danger there is better than the uncertainty here. Ada Peralta, NPR News, along the U.S.-Mexico border in Matamoros. If you saw a red flag warning on your weather app the last few days, you are not alone. Parts of the U.S. from Minnesota to Massachusetts have been getting the alerts, which warn of an increased risk of wildfires. NPR's Rachel Treesman reports on what precautions you should take if you're in a warning area. Red flag warnings mean that a combination of warm temperatures, low humidity, and strong winds will make it easier for wildfires to spread in the next 12 to 24 hours. We tell people to exercise extreme caution if you're burning or plan to be doing anything with fire outside. John Moore is a spokesperson for the National Weather Service. He says the agency works with local partners to issue warnings based on the weather and vegetation in each specific region. Red flag warnings can happen anywhere at any time of year, but often correspond to fire seasons. And they're really meant as a heads up. You don't want to start a bonfire or burn trash in your yard or doing those things that could lead to the spread of wildfire, like flicking a cigarette out of your window. 
Red flag warnings are a cue to make evacuation plans and implement bans or closures and inform firefighters' decisions. Firefighters actually gave them their name, says Tamara Wall with the Desert Research Institute. Literally, if it was a high fire danger at local fire stations, they would go and run a red flag up the flagpole. Another type of alert, a fire weather watch, applies for up to 72 hours. It's a difference of timing, not severity. But that's not the case for events like tornadoes and hurricanes, which can be confusing. Fire is a little bit of a tough one because unlike other warning watch products, we don't know if it's really going to happen. We can have all of the weather conditions, but if there's not an ignition, there's no event. Wall and other experts are working with the National Weather Service to try to simplify its hazard warning system. She thinks labeling the fire risk as moderate or high would help. And I kind of feel like if you keep things relatively simple, you'll do a better job of catching people's attention. Of course, fire safety is worth paying attention to all the time. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. Later today on All Things Considered, during Ramadan this year, mosques around New York City are broadcasting the Islamic call to prayer over loudspeakers. This is happening for the first time ever in a neighborhood known as Little Egypt in Astoria, Queens. Hear how this is empowering worshipers there. Listen on your reliable radio or play your member station on your smartphone. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up in just a few minutes on Morning Edition, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman talks about hockey's diversity efforts and its culture of fighting. And in 20 minutes, some New Hampshire towns are trying a new tool to combat high electricity rates. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Nigella Lawson has so many recipes, you could go a year without repeating one of them. Nathan Young wanted to try that. By kind of choosing a food writer and sticking with the same food writer, you'd learn to trust them over time, and you just kind of basically hand guidance over to them. A young dad challenged himself to cook 365 of his favorite chef's recipes. How he did it and how Lawson responded on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. There's a new art display open to the public at the State House featuring the official state dinosaur. That would be the Podokosaurus holiocensis. State Representative Jack Lewis led the campaign to name an official state dino. I believe there are 55 pieces of artwork, you know, a small fraction of the 35,000 kids that voted, but 55 pieces of artwork that range from toddlers drawing their first dinosaur to a couple of adult pieces. The dinosaur's fossils were discovered in Holyoke in 1910. In your forecast, increasingly cloudy today and a high near 56. The clouds hang around tonight and will have a low around 38. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 68. It's 44 degrees in Boston at 820. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. 
Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. And from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And i Martinez. The National Hockey League Stanley Cup playoffs began this week. The sport's highest level features players from all over North America and Europe. But back in October, the NHL revealed the results of their first ever diversity and inclusion report. Turns out 84% of its employees are white. That was a number that was not unexpected. That's NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman. But making the decision to have such a report and make it public is consistent with our goal of making sure that we're welcoming and inclusive and that we're going to hold ourselves accountable in a very public fashion as to how we're progressing to improve and increase our diversity. So having that report and making it public was a conscious effort to say we're going to do better. So far, their efforts have taken a lot of heat. For example, the NHL followed up the report with an event it called the Pathway to Hockey Summit in Fort Lauderdale. Originally, it was announced on LinkedIn that participants must identify, among other things, as female, black, Asian, Latino, indigenous, or LGBTQIA+. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called them discriminatory provisions, and the NHL took down the post, claiming the wording was not accurate. Earlier this week, when I spoke to NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman, I asked him what happened. I don't want to get into another debate with the governor. The fact is it was a forum to tell people about what opportunities there are in the game, particularly if they weren't familiar with us. And what the posting should have said, putting aside whether or not we were called out on it, what it should have said, it was people of all diverse backgrounds were encouraged to intend but either way, doesn't it appear as if either you did back down to Ron DeSantis or that you didn't have this together in the way that you intended to? You're trying to reach out to a no, diverse no, audience. I, 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 we were, but, but the fact of the matter is, and how it appeared and what the substance are sometimes divergent. The fact of the matter is that the LinkedIn post was misdrafted. And if it had been scrutinized higher up in the organization, it would have been corrected before it ever went out. The thing is, this hasn't been the only incident. The NHL's Hockey is for Everyone campaign, that's when players wore Pride Night warm-up jerseys and used rainbow-taped sticks. But after some refused to take part in this, the NHL left it up to individual teams to decide whom or what to support. So, Commissioner, it, it, Commissioner, it, it, what's the point of a league-wide initiative on inclusion if it's, it's you don't make... It's always been left up to the clubs. It's the always been is, left up. It's always been left to the clubs. Clubs make their own decisions to the extent that they have pride nights, the elements that they put into them have always been up, left up to the clubs and has always been left to the players as to who wants to participate. And overwhelmingly, our clubs and our players support pride night and what it stands for. And I don't think that the notion that a couple of players on each team or on some teams were not comfortable wearing pride jerseys is not an indictment. To the contrary, you have to be tolerant of all views and all expressions, and sometimes respect and endorsements are not the same thing. But overwhelmingly, our record's very clear in terms of our support of Pride Night. 
But Commissioner, can you see how the people the NHL is trying to attract might feel like the league may not support them if they can't stand behind their own initiatives? But, but we stand behind our initiatives, whether or not certain players choose to wear a particular jersey or to be involved in a particular cause. And again, if you want to focus on a handful of players, you're free to do that. But you have to look at the full body of work. And I think our record is crystal clear on that. On another topic, Commissioner, fighting. Why is fighting two guys just squaring up on the ice, barefisted, such a beloved part of the culture of hockey? Well, I don't know that you can say that it's a beloved part oh, of the commissioner, culture of hockey. I, no, no, no I got to interrupt you there, Commissioner, because I, I used to work at ESPN, and I've spoken to hockey player after hockey player who told me that it's just part of the way hockey is, oh, and you can't take okay, remove it from the game. But, well, by the way, what percentage of our games have fights? It doesn't matter the fact that it's no, not no, no. stamped out. You, you, you've, now, you've now made an assertion with respect to your focus on the game. What percentage of our games have fights? You, you tell me. You, you have the percentage. No, no, you tell me because I will tell you once you acknowledge you don't know the answer to the question. No, to that specific question, no. I, I can't say that I'm tuned okay. in to how many fights there roughly are in 80, NHL games. Roughly 80% of our games do not have fights. That's probably a record low. The types of fights we have uh, compared to years ago are spontaneous emotional reactions to what takes place on the ice. We don't have players who are designated fighters like we used to in the old game. The role of fighting is the game in the game has evolved and really acts as a thermostat because remember, we have a very fast physical emotional game where players are encouraged to have body contact. And by the way, they happen to be carrying sticks. So at the end of the day, it is a part of the game that is an emotional outlet. But overwhelmingly, roughly 80% of our games don't have fights in them. But you just said the role of fighting has changed, which means it's still part of the game. Well, I mean, it's penalized. It's there. I'm not going to deny the fact that there are occasional fights, but overwhelmingly there aren't. So considering that it's still is at least 20% part of the game, as you mentioned. Does the league acknowledge that CTE can result from head trauma no. suffered while playing in the no, NHL that, that, and maybe getting into these fights? You know what? Now you're going off on a tangent. No, um, the fact we're talking about a fight, enough. Commissioner, where people's heads you're make not, contact with other people's fists. you're throwing in CTE, uh, we listen to the medical opinions on CTE, and I don't believe there has been any documented study that suggests that elements of our game result in CTE. There have been isolated cases of players who have played the game have had CTE, but it doesn't mean that it necessarily came from playing in the NHL. Where head contact happens all the time, whether it's through falling on the ice or making contact with other players? What you're trying to do is equate football and hockey, and the two are not comparable in terms of the amount of head contact. Okay. That is the commissioner of the National Hockey League, Gary Bettman. Commissioner, thank you very much. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Enjoy the playoffs. This is NPR News. We should note tonight is Game 2 of the Bruins playoff series against the Florida Panthers. The puck drops at the Garden at 7.30. Coming up in five minutes, Bay State College is preparing to close. We hear from its students as they try to figure out what that means for their future. It's 8.29. 
Today, our podcast, The Common, continues its series on Earth Week with a look at Crane Ledge Woods. It's one of the largest unprotected wild areas in the city of Boston, and now a Texas developer wants to use the area for housing. Host Daryl C. Murphy dives into the issue. Check out The Common wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa, with Robert Beer, on view now. Plan your visit at PEM.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. An IT specialist with the Massachusetts Air National Guard is due back in court today in Boston. 21-year-old Jack Teixeira is accused of leaking dozens of top-secret intelligence documents online. Some of those documents involve the war in Ukraine. This latest hearing is to determine if Teixeira will remain in custody. He was charged under the Espionage Act. In Tennessee today, the family of Tyree Nichols is expected to announce a civil lawsuit against the city of Memphis. NPR's Kristen Wright says Nichols was a black man who died days after he was beaten by police officers during a traffic stop. Members of Tyree Nichols' family and civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump plan to gather outside of a Memphis courthouse to share details of a civil lawsuit they're now bringing against the city, the Memphis Police Department, and individual officers. Crump says officers intentionally inflicted emotional distress by lying to Nichols' mother. Body and street cam videos showed officers violently beating Nichols after a traffic stop in January. He died days later. Five former officers pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder and are expected back in court next month. Kristen Wright, NPR News. A suspect is under arrest in Maine following the shooting deaths of four people whose bodies were found south of Augusta. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts's climate-friendly policies are leading to better air quality in Boston. That's according to the American Lung Association. It gave the Boston metro area a passing grade for ozone pollution in its annual State of the Air report. It's the first time the city has received a passing grade in that category in the report's 24-year history. Members of a club created to encourage runners of color say they felt targeted by Newton police along the Boston Marathon route in Monday. on Monday. Video widely shared on social media show officers used their bicycles to block the group as it cheered runners on. The club's leaders say they weren't acting any differently than white spectators. Newton police defend their actions, saying members ignored earlier requests not to go past a rope barrier. A new exhibit at the ICA in Boston features the work of Simone Lee. Last year, she became the first black woman to represent the U.S. at the famed Venice Biennale Art Exhibition. WBR's Arielle Gray reports this is the first time Lee's work from that show is on display in the U.S. Lee uses ceramics, clay, and bronze to tackle complicated topics like racism and gender. This ICA exhibit is the first survey of her work, which includes looks at pieces that span Lee's artistic career. I feel really successful in this moment that I've even had the opportunity to have a survey because the generation previous to me, those black women got nothing. So while I have this like feeling of joy, it's also kind of sobering 
you know? The exhibit includes 28 pieces and a massive sculpture titled Satellite, which sits right outside of the museum. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. The Celtics now lead their playoff series against the Hawks two games to none. Boston topped Atlanta 119-106 to last night at the Garden. Game three will be Friday night in Atlanta. Tonight at the Garden, it's game two in the playoff series between the Bruins and the Florida Panthers. Boston leads that series one game to none. And the Red Sox beat the Twins last night 5-4 to in 10 innings at Fenway. Skies grow more overcast throughout the day today. We'll have highs in the mid-50s. Tonight it falls to the upper 30s, clearing overnight for mostly sunny skies tomorrow with highs in the upper 60s. Right now it's 44 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Without drastic intervention, Bay State College will close this summer. The small for-profit school faced eviction. It also lost its accreditation and its interim president. WBUR's Max Larkin reports that has students reeling and feeling uncertain about their future. Colleges, small and large, make a promise to their students. Pay your tuition, put in the work and the time, and in some way, you'll change your life. In his 12 years at Bay State College, Jeremy Shepard has gotten to know the students there well. Typical Bay State student, I'd say, is very career-focused. They may have tried other schools that weren't a fit, and they come here and it's, they find their passion, their niche, and they want to turn into their profession. In the past few months, though, he's had to temper that promise. Even as the college's accreditation was revoked in January, it fell behind on rent by nearly a million dollars. Then, in early April, the interim president, Jeff Mason, suddenly resigned. Shepard describes the mood on the college's Back Bay campus. I wouldn't say somber, per se, but it's, it just, it's a challenge. It's hard to tell students, like, you love it here. Unfortunately, we may not be able to have you. So... So there's an eerie feeling on campus this spring. The halls are full of mannequins, sporting clothes designed by fashion merchandising majors. And there are training dummies on gurneys in the nursing classrooms. But there aren't many students. The institution has been struggling for a while. The college was sold to a Chinese firm six years ago, but enrollment, already in decline, never recovered. As of last year, Bay State has about a third as many students as it had three years ago. But amid its troubles, Bay State really did have success stories, like its rigorous, well-regarded nursing program. Cheryl McInerney says the program's courses were difficult, but to a purpose. It's hard. It's really hard. Which, as I tell them all the time, it has to be. We have people's lives in our hands. you know. <laughs> so the rigor has to be there. 
McInerney led the nursing program from 2015 until just last year. She believes the program was a small but important pipeline for equity in nursing. Parents weren't uncommon. Neither were veterans. About half of its students were people of color. And the program placed 97% of its graduates in nursing jobs or in more advanced degree programs within two years. Among the nursing students left at Bay State this spring, many say the program really did work, like Matilde Herrera, Courtney Hansen, and Lindsay Sheehan. The diversity within the classes and also just the size of our classes, it's, it's a smaller school, so therefore, you know, smaller groups of students, which I personally enjoy. We can all agree that we're getting a great experience and great education. The professors are awesome at BC. They'll never turn you away. They're always there for you and very understanding. And it really gave me a sense of belonging. So it's understandable that students were caught off guard by the college's loss of accreditation. What's more, Sheehan says, school administrators painted a falsely rosy picture of the college's chances of a successful appeal. I guess I thought the school was better than it was. And I thought the school that was more willing to help the students than it really is. But there's nothing I can do about it now. The whiplash leaves Sheehan and as many as 17 other non-graduating nursing students in a bind. It isn't easy to transfer nursing credits. Bay State has found three potential transfer locations, but they're far from perfect. And at all three alternatives, students like Sheehan would have to repeat at least one semester, making the past year feel like a waste of time, money, and energy. I mean, I feel guilty. I'm 29. I should have my life together. I should start a family, and I can't do that. When I'm at home studying for school, that it might take me another two, three semesters to graduate. I thought I was home free. In a letter sent to the college community earlier this month, Bay State's new interim president says his team will work hard to find potential partner institutions who might want to acquire parts of Bay State and to help staff and students find a new place to work and study. It's a reminder that for all its troubles, Bay State College was a welcoming academic home for at least some of its students, and there's still no easy way to take that home away. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Across New England, communities are rethinking traditional utility companies. They're trying to save money and hoping to be part of the solution to climate change. Mara Hoplamazian reports on community power programs about to launch in New Hampshire. Keene was one of the first cities in New Hampshire to adopt commitments to 100% clean energy in 2019. But then they had to figure out how to follow through. The city of Keene, we have a limited number of levers that we can use to affect change. That's Mary Brenner, a senior planner with the city's community development department. She works on the fourth floor of City Hall, where you can see some of the thousands of solar panels the city has put in to help power public buildings. But Brenner says when it comes to all the electricity used in private homes and businesses, it's a different story. We do not have the authority to tell them you must use renewable energy or you have to install solar. We can't do that, right? What they can do now, for the first time, is sign residents up to buy electricity that is cheaper and more renewable at the same time through the city. It's called community power. Nine other states allow similar programs, and they're already big in places like California and Massachusetts. But this spring, the first 14 communities in New Hampshire are launching programs, including Keene. And so for us, it really was a game changer. Here's how it works. 
Usually, the utility company buys electricity from generators and delivers it to customers through their poles and wires. Think of it like a soft-serve ice cream machine. The utility company takes care of the machine, fixes it when it breaks down, makes sure it's big enough to handle all the ice cream people want. Traditionally, they handle purchasing the ice cream, too. But under community power, a city or town starts buying the ice cream and choosing the flavors. They can offer new kinds of electricity plants and give people the choice to buy up to 100% renewable energy. It's designed to help accelerate the cost-effective development and integration of new clean energy resources, both distributed renewable generation and storage and large-scale clean energy and renewable generation like offshore wind. That's Clifton Bilo. He's Lebanon's assistant mayor, and he's been working on the idea of community power since the 1970s. Cleaning up the grid and making it more resilient is key to stopping climate change. And Bilo says giving towns the ability to purchase their own power can spur demand for things like solar and wind, and in the future, get more renewable projects built locally. But he says another really important part of this is getting people more involved in their energy. We're sort of taking the uh, hood, opening up the hood on how the electric system works. So as community members learn more about um, how our electric system works and what the options are for change, we're empowering uh, community leaders to be more active participants in driving that change On a cloudy Tuesday night in Nashua, residents packed into a room in City Hall, many holding community power flyers they'd gotten in the mail. Like all the state's community power programs, Nashua's is opt-out, meaning everyone is enrolled. Celeste Bergeron was one of those who came to learn more. I'm retired, and so it's very important that I keep my fixed budget the way it is. So right now, that's more my concern. I do want renewable energy as much as we can. So I'm liking that Nashua's headed that way. Many people have seen their energy bills double or even triple in the past few months. But community power programs can buy electricity a little differently than regulated utilities. And when they start up, some people will be saving as much as $50 a month. Nashua's energy manager, Doria Brown, says the program is exciting for a lot of reasons. And it comes at the right time. So I think great relief really comes first right now. And as the project evolves, I think more people will be thinking about, hmm, where is my energy coming from? How can a renewable energy resource maybe even provide more rate relief for me if it's located in my community? And Brown says, importantly, it's also easy. Residents don't need to research or make any big investments. Community power gives everyone in the city automatic access to information and options and the benefits of renewable energy. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian. Coming up on Morning Edition at 8.45, we look at the possible impact of the nearly $790 million settlement in the Fox News defamation trial. In your forecast, increasingly overcast and a bit windy today with temperatures rising to the mid-50s. Still cloudy tonight and it falls to the upper 30s. Clearing skies overnight make way for a mostly sunny day tomorrow in the upper 60s. Right now it's 45 degrees in Boston at 8.44. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, investing in the physical and emotional health of young people and proud to support the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's performing arts programs in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan, offering opportunities for movement, dance, drama, and music, helping young people build resiliency and self-esteem. 
The Massachusetts Convention Center Authority is pausing its plans to redevelop a piece of land in South Boston. Proposals would have turned area across from the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center into a sprawling lab and commercial development. But the authority faced criticism from politicians and neighbors who accused it of rushing the process. A drug maker with more than 700 employees in Waltham is planning to split into two publicly traded companies. Alchemy says one of those new companies will focus on developing cancer drugs and will likely be headquartered in Waltham. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com and Porter Square Books, celebrating Independent Bookstore Day. Crafts, activities, author events, and more, Saturday, April 29th in Cambridge and Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. $787,500,000. That's how much Fox News is paying a voting technology company as part of a legal settlement. The company, Dominion Voting Systems, had sued Fox for defamation over lies the network broadcast following the 2020 presidential election. Here's Dominion lawyer Stephen Shackelford after the deal was announced. Money is accountability. And we got that today from Fox. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick has been covering the case. He joins us from Wilmington, Delaware. David, is this settlement an acknowledgement that Fox did indeed lie? Yes and no. And let's start with the no. It's a very passively constructed statement. It says, you know, that Fox acknowledges the court's ruling that certain statements about Dominion voting systems were false. And that's technically true. What it doesn't say is that Fox itself broadcast and at times embraced those claims. And there's no apology on the air. But that said, it did acknowledge the falsity of it. And the lawyers that I talked to from Dominion last night pointed to that and say, look, that's really important. That's part of the record. And the court has found that and Fox has acknowledged that. The second thing is the size of the settlement, $787 million, just a scotch under half of the $1.6 billion Dominion had been publicly seeking for this, is so large that that's part of an apology. And the very fact that that figure was disclosed publicly, often in such settlements, those figures are not disclosed. The facts that Fox had to agree for that to be disclosed publicly meant that Dominion can always point to that and say, you know, people like Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch at the top of that corporate empire sure aren't giving more than three quarters of a billion dollars away out of charity. That's an admission of wrongdoing right there. You mentioned no acknowledgement on the air. Did Fox News mention it at all as part of the news? <laughs> You know, it reported it very briefly, sort of in a Spartan way. It did acknowledge it on, on a, some of its news shows. Uh, its chief media host and correspondent, Howard Kurtz, did appear. But, you know, in its 6 p.m. political newscast, he said he hadn't been able to confirm the figure that had been announced just outside the courthouse by a phalanx of attorneys for Dominion Voting Systems about the only reporter in America who could not do so. All right. Now, this case really offered uh, the public a, a rare look at the inner workings of Fox News. But the outlet is uh, kind of entangled in other litigation as well. Uh, where do they stand on their other lawsuits? You know, there's a bunch of others. There was a, a producer, for uh, Chief Booker, for Tucker Carlson's primetime show. She sued Fox, saying, among other things, they had pressured her to mislead the court and Dominion in her testimony here. She was promptly fired. Smartmatic has a $2.7 billion lawsuit teed up against Fox. It was actually filed before Dominion. Uh, that's another voting tech company that was similarly, essentially, described in clearly false and defamatory ways. It was involved only in Los Angeles County in the 200 
2020 elections. Hard to believe it committed any voter fraud. And certainly there'll be shareholder lawsuits as well that ensue when you see uh, leadership of Fox involved in sort of getting them into this kind of trouble. David, what do you think is the larger significance of this case uh, and its resolution? Well, you know, had this gone forward, it would have been the most important uh, defamation trial in many, many decades. But I think the very nature of this suit tells us a lot about Fox, how it reacted in crisis, the degree in which uh, there was cynicism here, and also that there are limits on what you can say, even with America's incredibly stringent protections for freedom of speech, there are limits to what uh, the media can say and do in ways that are false and defamatory and hurtful. And Fox just bumped up against it. That's NPR's David Falkenflick in Wilmington, Delaware. David, thanks. You bet. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the job market for the coming summer intern season. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. Nigella Lawson has so many recipes, you could go a year without repeating one of them. Nathan Young wanted to try that. By kind of choosing a food writer and sticking with the same food writer, you'd learn to trust them over time, and you just kind of basically hand guidance over to them. A young dad challenged himself to cook 365 of his favorite chef's recipes. How he did it and how Lawson responded on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. A Massachusetts Air National Guard member will be back in court today on charges related to leaking classified documents. The Supreme Court is expected to make a decision today on access to the abortion pill Mifepristone. And a new United Nations report shows India is set to become the most populous country on Earth by this summer, surpassing China. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Mid-50s today under skies that'll grow increasingly overcast. It's 45 degrees in Boston at 8.51. When the going gets tough, the tough start a business. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by SoFi. With a SoFi high-yield savings account, members can earn more. Plus, deposits are FDIC-insured. Learn more at SoFi.com. Get your money right. SoFi Bank N.A. Member FDIC. And by Bitwarden, a password manager for businesses designed to securely store, share, and manage credentials for employees. Learn more at Bitwarden.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. During the worst of the pandemic, people got resourceful. Many started new businesses, 552,000 new businesses in just July of 2020. That was the highest monthly number in the Census Bureau's records. Even now, people are still starting businesses at a historically high rate. Last month, business applications increased 4.5% from the month before. Marketplace's Henry Epp has more. When an economic crisis hits, entrepreneurship often jumps, says Samiksha Desai, a professor at Indiana University. That is often, not always, but often driven by people who may be exiting the wage labor market, right? So perhaps 
pushed, uh, you know, from unemployment into self-employment. But even with unemployment at historic lows, people are still starting a lot of new businesses, says John Haltewanger, an economics professor at the University of Maryland. Something's become unleashed in this period of time where there's lots of experimentation going on. Haltewanger says it's hard to know why, but he sees two trends. One, more businesses in the service sector are starting up outside city centers, catering to people working from home. We see this hollowing out of the downtown area and this donut effect in terms of the business formation in the surrounding areas. Two, there are more tech startups. Some of that could be workers laid off from big tech companies. The Haltewanger says it's too soon to know for sure. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. We are on our way, slowly, to summer. And summer is internship season. Employers expect to increase their summer intern numbers by almost 10% compared to last year. That's according to a recent survey from the National Association of Colleges and Employers. Why more interns, you ask? Recruitment. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes reports. 19-year-old Lexi Harrell is studying human capital and labor relations as a junior at Michigan State. This summer, she'll have her first ever internship. It's in human resources at the insurer Allstate. Her goal is to learn about both HR and insurance. I just want to be someone that people can ask questions to instead of being the person that's always asking questions. Employers view internships as an opportunity to ask questions of potential workers. Many say it's an integral part of their recruiting strategy. Mary Gatto with the National Association of Colleges and Employers says lots of internships result in job offers. And of those interns who accept? The retention rates for employees who served as interns are higher at the one-year and the five-year mark than those who did not. Gatta says internships give workers a chance to get a sense of a company's culture. That comes through even in a hybrid setting, where workers are in the office sometimes and sometimes remote, a reflection of the way lots of office jobs currently are. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers real quick. The FTSE in London is down three-tenths of a percent. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures also all down in the four to nine-tenths percent range with the Dow future down 133 points. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Otter.ai. Otter's AI meeting assistant helps reduce meeting fatigue by automatically taking live meeting notes, capturing slides, generating summaries, and assigning action items. More at otter.ai. And by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Republican members of Congress are pushing for more work requirements in programs like food stamps and Medicaid. Proponents say these requirements can help fix labor shortages and federal deficits. Critics say they don't reduce poverty. But there's another aspect that gets less attention, the private for-profit industry that's grown around enforcing welfare work requirements. That is what the new season of Marketplace's investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour, is all about. And the host, Chrissy Clark, is here to talk about it. Hi, Chrissy. Hey, Sabri. So you're calling this season the welfare-to-work industrial complex. What do you mean by that? Right. So over the years, we've all heard politicians talk about the dangers of so-called welfare dependency. But there's this little-known group of million- and billion-dollar corporations that some argue have cultivated their own cycle of dependency on the federal government. These are corporations that have largely built their business on enforcing work requirements in welfare-to-work programs. 
you spent some time inside these for-profit welfare businesses, getting to know them, getting to know their business models. How was that? Yeah. So the thinking behind putting private companies into this role is that they would do a better job than government in getting people into jobs because they already have a sort of business mentality. So I talked to this guy named Peter Cove, who founded one of these welfare-to-work companies called America Works. He told me he sees his business as having two main customers, the government, who pays his company to run welfare offices, and employers who might hire people on welfare. So I asked him how the welfare recipients themselves fit into his business model. I think of them more as the product of our company. I mean, they're inventory for us. How much do you make off your inventory? <laughs> we make enough to stay in business. Our revenue runs between 40 and $50 million a year. And that, that's just one company of many, huh? Yeah, and we found that over the years, these companies have raked in hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars running these welfare-to-work programs and putting welfare recipients into all kinds of federally mandated work activities. And critics say these companies are getting paid a lot of money without much to show. Often they're just funneling people into low-wage jobs that don't get them out of poverty or really pay them enough to support a family without having to keep relying on government assistance. What do people who have been on welfare and have turned to these privatized welfare companies, what do they say? So some people I've talked to have had good experiences, found good jobs, but others felt like the companies didn't have their best interests at heart. So we wanted to look up close at this privatization of welfare, how companies are profiting off the work requirement policies that we already have, and how this policy of coerced work is affecting people in all kinds of jobs everywhere. That's Chrissy Clark, Marketplace senior correspondent and host of our podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Their new season just launched. Episodes come out every Wednesday. Thanks so much, Chrissy. Thank you, Sabri. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. It'll grow more cloudy as the day goes on today. Meanwhile, temperatures will rise to the mid-50s. Tonight, those fall to the upper 30s. Skies clear overnight, and tomorrow we'll have a mostly sunny Thursday in the upper 60s. Right now, it's 46 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.